one of my fondest memories of family vacations when our kids were young was listening to CDs of the uh, radio theater production of C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. Um, if you have not listened to those, you should grab them, look them up. Uh, we heard them over and over again, and I loved them. I loved the deep, resonating British voice of Aslan, the great Jesus-like lion who guarded and guided the Pevensey children through all their adventures. He said, In your world, I have another name. You must learn to know me by that name. I just love Aslan. Um, He's the king. He's a lion. And the children both trembled and rested in his presence at the same time. Well, at the end of the fifth book, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, Lucy and her brother Edmund are out exploring on uh, what they see as a huge, green, grassy plain. And in the distance, where the green of the grass meets the deep blue of the horizon, their eyes land on something blindingly white out there in the middle of that spacious field of short green grass. There's something white out there, and as they approach it and they get closer and closer and closer, they come to discover that it's a pure white lamb. Come and have breakfast, said the lamb in its sweet milky voice. Then they noticed for the first time that there was a fire lit on the grass and fish roasting on it, and it was the most delicious food that ever tasted. Lewis goes on to describe how as the lamb and the children share a meal and conversation, suddenly, he says, the lamb's white flushed into a tawny gold and his size changed and he was Aslan himself, the lion, towering above them and scattering light from his mane. Can't you just see it? Ah, Aslan. The lamb, the lamb is Aslan. The lamb is the lion. Friends, because we know how the story of Jesus ends, typically when we come to Mark 11 to uh, what we saw on Palm Sunday as Jesus riding into Jerusalem on the donkey, typically we see him riding in as the pure spotless lamb being led to his slaughter on Passover. And Mark will present Jesus that way in chapters 14 and 15, but in chapters 11 to 13 that we're starting today, Jesus comes to Jerusalem as the Lion of Judah, shaking the mane of his authority, scattering a holy light of judgment that will make people tremble. So these next few chapters are going to be kind of rough. Uh, Jesus um, comes and he, he makes us tremble. In these verses, Mark gives us a glimpse of what Revelation 6.16 says is the wrath of the Lamb. Jesus comes riding into Jerusalem as Israel's true prophet, true priest, and true king. And so, as I read, listen to him roar. 
Mark chapter 11, starting at verse 11. And he entered Jerusalem and went around <clears throat> and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. That was on Palm Sunday. And now, on Monday, here's Jesus the prophet. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. That's Jesus the prophet, now Jesus the priest. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when the evening came, they, Jesus and the disciples, went out of the city. And now Tuesday morning, as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, Forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. That was Jesus the priest, now Jesus the king. And they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was talking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you the authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, Well, if we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? Uh, but shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Wow. So these are, these are difficult things to understand. Um, 
withering fig trees, uh, flipping tables in the temple, mountain moving faith. Phew. Uh, but if you'll be patient with me for a few minutes, uh, I think I can begin to make sense of what Jesus was doing there and then, and I think I can help us start to understand what it means for us here and now. So, here we go. Jesus is the true prophet. What, what is up with the fig tree? <laughs> what is going on there? Was Jesus hangry? Um, was he wasting miraculous power on a temper tantrum? Of course not. No. He's using the fig tree as a parable, as an object lesson, to show us that the true prophet has come to pronounce judgment on God's people. And that's what prophets do. They are God's prosecutors. Uh, the Old Testament prophets brought charges against Israel for, bre for breaking God's law, and they also pronounced the sentence of their coming judgment. Um, and alongside the olive tree and the grapevine, uh, the fig tree was one of the favorite metaphors that the Old Testament prophets used for Israel, as we read in Jeremiah earlier today. Um, so the fig tree represents Israel, God's people. And we know that this encounter with the fig tree took place at Passover, which would have been about late March or April. So yes, it's not the, the season for the figs, the full figs. But apparently, Middle Eastern fig trees, and I say apparently because I'm not an expert, I had to read this myself. Uh, apparently, Middle Eastern fig trees produce two kinds of fruit. One commentator explained, he said, as the leaves were starting to come in in the spring, which is when Jesus was there, before the figs came, uh, the branches bore these little nodules, uh, which were abundant and very good to eat. He said, travelers liked to pick them off and eat them as they made their journey. So if you found a fig tree that had begun to sprout leaves, but had none of those delicious nodules, you would know that something was wrong. It might look okay from a distance, Jesus saw it from a distance, but because the leaves uh, had, it might look okay from a di distance because the leaves had emerged, but if it had no nodules, it was diseased or maybe even dying inside. Growth without fruit was a sign of decay. So here, here's Jesus, the true prophet, and he's come to say, God hungers for his people to bear good fruit. But again and again throughout their history, Israel had the leafy green appearance of life. But upon close inspection, they proved to be fruitless. Though they had what appeared to be the outward form of godliness in their religious rituals and temple sacrifices, inwardly they had no power of love for God and people. They worshiped God with their lips the prophet said, but their hearts were far from him. So Jesus, the prophet, comes and he provokes his people to face the reality of their hearts. Where is the fruit that God hungers to see in your life? If there's no fruit, then there is no root. Time is up for Israel. Jesus, the true prophet, pronounces the verdict and the sentence on fruitless Israel May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And then, with that prophetic authority, 
Jesus, the, two, the true priest, comes into the temple. In verses 15 to 19, Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who, who bought in the temple. So in the temple, the court of the Gentiles was the outermost court in the temple. There's the court of the Gentiles, then the court of the women, then the next court was for um, circumcised men, and then the Holy of Holies was where only the priests would come. But the court of the Gentiles in Herod's temple was thought to be over 30 acres of space inside a, a columned wall. And um, Jesus is coming into that place, uh, which was reserved uh, for Gentiles, people who were not Jews but who wanted to worship the God of Israel. And since this was the Feast of Passover, uh, Jerusalem was filled with people. And so now this court of Gentiles was filled with thousands of merchants selling sacrificial animals to tens of thousands of worshipers who had, con who had come from long distances uh, to the temple for Passover. So you can just hear the merchants in their, their advertisements. Why bring that lamb on the long journey? Why not get one at the temple? Ah, but don't forget the convenience fee. Um, the money flowed in that place like the blood of those 250,000 lambs that were sacrificed every Passover in Jerusalem. Jesus wants nothing of it. But it gets worse. You see, to buy that lamb, you couldn't use Roman currency because... Of course, that has idolatrous connections with Caesar, whose image is on the coin. So to buy your spotless lamb, you needed clean coins. Well, we're here to help. <laughs> exchange your Roman currency for our temple currency. Yes, the exchange rate is high and in our favor, but hey, only the best for God, right? Jesus overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. The true priest has had enough. And Jesus would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple and he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The true priest is fed up with fruitless Israel. He's simply fed up with rootless Israel. The house that was meant to make, uh, make space for prayers who love God with all their heart has become a place for praying on people for the love of money. The household of God's children was meant to welcome the nations into relationship with their father, but they've refused to love their neighbors. Jesus said to the fig tree, you had one job produce fruit. Jesus says to Israel, you had one job, produce the fruit of love. I see lots of religious leaves, but where's the real love for God and for people? But still, who, who is this Jesus? And how dare he get in the way of sacrifices being made? He would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple, and I assume that means sacrifices. 
Well, no wonder the chief priests and the scribes were out to destroy him. These sacrifices in this temple were central to their existence as the people of God. Was Jesus bringing to an end the only way sinful people could have their sins forgiven and live in right relationship with God? It seems so, but no. (laughs) Because as Mark has been showing us and will show us in the rest of his book, Jesus is the only way that sinful people can dwell in relationship with a holy God because he has offered himself as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Yes, this was the beginning of the end of the temple and the sacrifices because the true high priest had come and the true Lamb of God would finally be slain. The temple would no longer be the place where God accepts sacrifices for sin so he could dwell with his people. Jesus came not to be the place, but the person through whom the holy God dwells with sinful people because he became the lamb that took away their sins. And So that's why Mark is putting this temple cleansing scene right in the middle of the fig tree event and the fig tree explanation. The day after Jesus cleansed the temple, Peter says, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And we're going to see when we get to Mark chapter 13 um, that, that what Mark has been trying to tell us is, look, fruitless Israel will wither. And in chapter 13, Jesus will predict the destruction of the temple, which we now know happened in 70 AD. This chapter of Israel's story is coming to an end. The prophet has pronounced the sentence and the priest has come to clean house. The true prophet, true priest, and true king of Israel has come to open the next chapter of the true Israel. And who are they? Who are are these people, the true Israel? And what fruit will they bear? Well, Jesus answers those questions this way. Here's the fruit that the true Israel will bear. Jesus said, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. Now, On first glance, it seems strange that these sayings of Jesus are right here where they are. But the Holy Spirit had Mark put them here for a reason. These sayings are related to what has been going on because, as one commentator put it, these sayings of Jesus reveal the essence of the new order that will replace the old. These sayings of Jesus describe the fruit that Jesus is looking for the fruit that the true Israel will bear. And check this out. Jesus describes the true Israel by describing his disciples. He speaks to the 12 here. These sayings that he says, he's talking to the 12 disciples. And remember, 12 tribes in Israel, 12 disciples who will become the new Israel. And now Jesus describes the fruit they will produce. Three fruits. Jesus first says that they will bear the fruit of wholehearted faith in him. 
have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it does not doubt in his heart. It's a wholehearted faith, but believes that what he says for him. So what does that mean? What does this mean? Well, let me tell you what it does not mean. It does not mean that faith is some sort of Yoda-like force that you can use to throw a mountain into the sea. That's not what he's talking about. That's silly. And neither Jesus nor his disciples ever did that. So likely they are standing outside of Jerusalem on the Mount of Olives. From the Mount of Olives, you can see down south the Dead Sea. And so Jesus was using this as a vivid word picture to describe a confidence that God can do the impossible. God could take this mountain and throw it into the sea. Jesus is saying that those who are truly his disciples will bear the fruit of a faith that has wholehearted confidence that God will do the impossible for his people. So this is not about having a faith that can throw mountains into oceans. It's about having a confidence that God will do impossible things through his feeble followers as they are on mission with him in the world to spread the good news that in Jesus, God has already done the most impossible thing. God has reconciled sinners to himself by, be, by coming in human flesh to be the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. So as I thought about that this week, I, I thought, is that wholehearted confidence in me? Have I lost confidence? And I believe the answer was yes to me this week. I have, I've lost confidence in what God can do in me to change me. Do I ever look at myself, any part of me, and go, that's never going to change? How dare I doubt that God cannot change anything about me? Have I lost confidence in what God could do in others? Do I look at other people and say, they're never going to change? How dare I doubt that the God who could throw a mountain in the ocean ever change somebody Jesus was crucified dead buried but he's alive right now and so God says come on what else you got bring it on the fruit of God's disciples um, is a confident faith that he can do the impossible because he's already done the most impossible through Jesus and then Jesus says another fruit that we will bear as his followers is dependent prayer. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. So this wholehearted confidence in King Jesus expresses itself in a dependent prayer. The temple is no longer the house of prayer. I am. You are. And this is, this is not a name it and claim it prayer or blab it and grab it. This is not what Jesus is talking about. This is the kind of praying that shows we are depending on the king's power, the king's provision, and the king's pro protection as we carry out the king's mission. You have to balance what Jesus says here for, with what he says when he teaches us how to pray in the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this 
So it's about his mission and his will. Give us this day our daily bread. He will provide. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. He will protect. Jesus is saying, my followers will constantly depend on me by asking in prayer for whatever they need to accomplish my mission to see my kingdom come and my will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Jimmy's heart as it is in heaven. In your house as it is in heaven. In your school as it is in heaven. In your workplace as it is in heaven. In your neighborhood as it is in heaven. And my disciples, Jesus says, will ask with a full unwavering confidence that they have received already what they need to be my people in the places I've put, put them and to believe it will be theirs. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with Jesus graciously give us all things we need to accomplish his mission? So do you pray? Is your wholehearted confidence in God's power to do the impossible expressing itself is asking him to do the impossible? And then Jesus says that his true followers will bear bear the fruit of overflowing forgiveness. Whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. True disciples of Jesus will prove that they know his forgiveness when they show his forgiveness to others. The forgiveness of their own sins uh, through Jesus so fills them up that they overflow with forgiveness toward others. So I ask myself and I ask you, do you approach the people in your life who have hurt you, who have wronged you, who have sinned against you, do you approach them knowing that you are a person who knows what it's like to be forgiven? Do I approach other sinners as a fellow sinner who has a fresh awareness of what it means to be forgiven? How can I have a fresh awareness of what it means to be forgiven if I'm not every day bringing my sins before Jesus and saying, I need your forgiveness? Fill me with the love that your forgiveness gives me so that I can overflow with it for other people. So friends, is the temple of your heart and life a place where wholehearted faith, dependent prayer, and overflowing forgiveness are alive and growing like figs on a fig tree? Has Jesus been using these days of COVID crisis to expose what's been cluttering your soul with junk and noise? Like money changers and animals in the temple. What is taking up the space in your temple that belongs to your priest, Jesus? Do you recognize the authority of King Jesus in your life? Do you acknowledge that his authority to inspect the fruit in your life comes from God? Because see, that's the, the problem with the chief priests and the scribes and the elders is they recognize that Jesus had authority, 
but they would not acknowledge that his authority came from God and they would not submit to him. Will we, will I, will you submit to him? Will you admit that this Jesus has the authority to speak into your life and to flip tables when necessary? Before Lucy ever met that lion that we know as Aslan, she heard a good bit about him from Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. Here's a conversation. Lucy asked, Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mrs. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about being safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Friends, our King Jesus is a lion. And he's not safe. He is not safe. Why, why on earth would you let King Jesus rip you open and roar into your life? Why would you want him to do that? Why would you be crazy enough to let that prophet examine your life and expose your fruit, fruitlessness? Why would you open up the temple of your heart and let that priest start flipping tables and turn your life upside down? Why? Because he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Because the rest of Mark tells you that the lion is the lamb who loves you and gave himself to be slain for you. That lion is the lamb who took the judgment of your fruitless life and mine upon himself so that you and I could become part, become part of his new kingdom of priests who are filled with the fruit of wholehearted faith in him, full of prayer that depends on him, full of forgiveness that overflows out of us to the people around us. No, Jesus isn't safe, but he's good. He's good. He's your crucified king. Let him in. Father, um, help us to trust that this scary lion is a sweet lamb who gave himself for us because he loves us. Help us to submit to his authority in our lives so that he can Make us bear fruit for your kingdom and your glory and the world's good. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.